United States Institute of Peace, along with Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124, now present their weekly podcast. I'm excited about our next guest because he's going to talk to us about a movement that most of us have not heard about, and we may find something relatable in the purposes of this. Andrew Cheatham is the Senior Advisor for Global Policy Working in the Executive Office of the U.S. Institute of Peace. Uh, Andrew, talk to us about this non-aligned movement and how it's playing out in the global community with alliances from country to country. Hi, Nayar. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yes, well, you know, the non-aligned movement really started in the 50s and 60s during the Cold War when it was really prominent uh, for, for states to say, look, I don't I don't want to be a part of the, the Soviet Union, U.S. communist capitalist uh, binary choice. And it really, really took off to also be a movement for what they call the global south developing countries for decolonization and development. Um, and it was a strong it was a strong movement despite some internal some internal turmoil. But then after the Cold War, it sort of lost. It had an identity crisis, and it didn't really know what to do. But but all of a sudden, the non-aligned movement, which is 120 countries, is the second largest uh, multilateral movement after the United Nations, and uh, it's starting to to bud new fruit. Really, really starting with COVID and the mm-hmm. the claimed sort of inequities of COVID. Uh, but now with, with the war in Ukraine and the, the greater competition with China, this is making this movement more and more prominent with these 120 countries. They're very prominent in the UN General Assembly and in geopolitics. I'd like to talk quickly uh, about how NATO has played a role uh, in the non-aligned movement. Uh, NATO having been Another answer to Cold War uh, military alliances, particularly now as we see Russian aggression, imperialism and invasion of Ukraine and NATO really taking a firm stance of supporting Ukraine, but not making this about a war to Russia, though Russia clearly sees the uh, absorption of Finland into NATO as a threat, uh, as well as Sweden and potential Ukraine even joining after uh, this last NATO meeting. That's also considered to be a threat by Russia. So folks who are in the Nine Align movement, um, for example, the other BRICS countries, BRICS, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. That's it. That's a group, folks, that they engage together uh, in the United Nations and that that system of things. How are those other countries that have often allied with Russia on, in some spaces, how are they now navigating the war in Ukraine? Well, it's very interesting. Um you know these these countries like Sweden and Finland and Switzerland, you know, which are often referred to as the the neutrals, the 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 European neutrals. You know that that idea dates back to you know the eighteenth eighteenth century and before. But 
the 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 non-aligned movement is 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 ultimately the same thing. I mean, there's some legal differences in some respects, but ultimately, it's people who have said in these great power competitions, we we choose not to to play a part. We choose not to take a side, and that that was the case with Sweden and Finland until recently, as you say, when joining NATO. It is a it is a, a tenant of the non-aligned movement to not join military align, alliances that are deliberately choosing a side in a great power conflict. So. None of the NATO countries would qualify, as it were, to be to be in the non-aligned movement. But these countries, these 120 countries in Africa, Latin America, and Asia, mostly in in, in these developing in the developing world, have interestingly chosen, as you say, to say, "Look, we're not choosing a side in the Russia-Ukraine battle." We, we today we've seen that the grain deal is going to Russia is going to pull out of the grain deal. That grain deal was highly advocated by the non-aligned movement because they were suffering from the global food crisis that, that that was a result of the war in Ukraine. So I think the non-aligned movement looks at the war in Ukraine as an existential threat with a nuclear armed power on one side and then NATO on the other. Um, and they also look at the effects like the grain, the, the halting of of Ukrainian grain and Russian grain through the Black Sea and see see the problems with this and say we're not choosing a lot of them also have not have chosen not to join on to the US sanctions so they're they're sort of bowing out of the of the the side choosing and um and, and just want the war to end basically mm. and you've mentioned the non-aligned movement also looking at the global south uh, coming out of the covid pandemic realizing in places like India and Latin America that the vaccine access inequity, uh, their inability that to get vaccines that effectively were being manu- developed in Europe and the United States. Now, mind you, developed with scientists and expertise that often came from many of these developing world countries, right, like scientific community, global community, but encouraged and supported by dollars in the more developed parts of the world where that can afford to invest in long-term research, but companies then patenting and taking those and, and making it nearly inaccessible for anybody in Latin America, India, uh, in Southeast Asia to be able to get vaccinated in a global pandemic. So you're now seeing uh, the BRICS countries say that they, they're not going to be caught unprepared next time. What does that look like then? What What is this idea of the global South preparing itself for the future pandemic independent of uh, donations from the developed world or from the West, from, you know, what we call the Western Europe? What does that even look like? Yeah, it's really, really interesting. So Azerbaijan, who is the has been the chair of the non-aligned movement since 2019, was really outspoken and and on the front lines of of bringing the non-aligned 120 countries together to uh, virtually in 2020 to to really speak out against what they saw as really these inequities of a global problem that needed global solutions is the way they looked at it. They also are champions of of climate issues that which they see as uh, um, affecting the global south, uh, affecting island nations and many members of the non-aligned movement uh, disproportionately. And they and they ask, you know, where where is where are the where is the developed world? And I think it's it's important to note that 
you know, we have this competition with China, of course, the war in Ukraine with Russia, but the, the major story in geopolitics is the rise of the rest. Fareed Zakaria talks about this, many others. So you have, as you said, Brazil, South Africa, India, there are many other countries, the Gulf countries, uh, Turkey, many countries besides the China and the US and, and possibly Russia as just major powers. And the rest are saying, we're going to form alliances like the BRICS, which they're hoping to expand. Uh, in the new conference that they're going to have to some, I don't know, 30 countries. They're forming their own military alliances, their own bank, uh, economic alliances to say, look, we're not going to wait for the West to take care of us. We're going to take action into our own hands economically and technologically. And I think it's just something that the U.S. must bear bear witness to. I'll just tell you a quick story. When I, when I travel for the United States uh, and speak to countries mostly in Africa, but also in the Asian Pacific, um, they say, look, we don't want to have this choice, this zero sum game, mostly between the U.S. and China. We want there to be, you know, a room for all. And and so there, there's an article just this last week, the myth of neutrality countries will have to choose in foreign affairs. And, and that's the answer they don't want to hear. The administration has been good about rhetoric, about saying they don't want to make people choose in a zero sum game. But, you know, the facts are that it's looking more and more that way. I, when we say we don't don't want to have to make that choice and it's looking more and more that way, how does that choice play out? Well, it, it, it well, most I think strategically it plays out in places where China wants to have military bases, maybe mm-hmm. Equatorial Guinea, it happened in the UAE, where the there will there will be some really hard discussions with the US about you know choosing one side or the other. The other way it plays out is in you know, in in the in the economic race for for critical minerals, for example, in Africa, there's lots of new mining, lots of new economic uh, engagements, infrastructure projects to to facilitate that, and also just infrastructure projects for general e- economic development in places like Africa, Latin America, and sometimes in these deals between the World Bank, the IMF, the so-called Bretton Woods, Western sort of Paris Club versus China, there is often this sense of a choice. You either take our loan or you take this loan. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be that way, but it's countries feel that they. I've heard that countries feel they are they they're being forced these choices and they don't like it. Well, and and Andrew, that's also the the, the choice is um, often not made by the people um, who would have to right. then take on the debt. It's the choice is made by autocrats, corrupt leaders in many of these nations who want the quick money, want the quick. Yes, China built me a port, built this country a port, like the Gowadar port in Pakistan, for example. But then China, with the massive uh, interest that it has levied on these loans, if people and the countries aren't able to pay them back, actually has walked in and nationalized many elements, meaning like we built you a port. You couldn't pay it because of our uh, draconian terms. So we're just, you know. Not only are we staff it with our people, we're also going to take it over. Uh, and this is part of their economic imperialism. Is there a United States counter to that? Because typically the United States has done infrastructure projects like ports and dams and roads as part of a humanitarian or development exercise, which doesn't necessarily operate with that hard national security calculus that China is using. 
Absolutely. You know, that debt trap diplomacy, as they call it, of China's yeah. something that we've seen many countries suffer from. I think that the main offer that the U.S. has is with its allies through multilateral systems, because China is just offering, well, has been through the Belt and Road Initiative, but it's gone down a little bit recently. But in general, has been offering on a, uh, infrastructure and financing deals on a scale that we're just not prepared as a single country to do anymore. Um, so I think the only way we can match is working with uh, our partners uh, in the World Bank, in, in the IMF, but but also through aid programs jointly through the United Nations. The only offer we're going to be able to have as the U.S. is with our allies in countries to, to structure deals, as you say, that aren't part of some trap. And then also condition good governance, inclusive governance, dem democratic principles, human rights. They make that tailored for each country, not not too onerous that the that, that countries, you know, just can't do it, but but also are part of a bigger package that helps serve the people and are ultimately more sustainable than what China has to offer. We are seeing, I would just say, Janet Yellen working in China to try to model the Zambian deal. Zambia, as you uh, is one of the countries, like you mentioned, that was suffering from these Chinese um loans. And there's been a deal to restructure the debt of Zambia uh, between the, the, the debtors like the World Bank and others and China. So that was a breakthrough. Uh, and Janet Yellen has recently said uh, in her meetings in Beijing that she hopes to use that as a model with the Chinese to have deals for countries trying to get out of these massive debts. So hopefully there's some hope on the horizon and hopefully the U.S. can, can counter these offers from this debt trap diplomacy that you're that you're talking about. Of China. Indeed. Uh, when in the last question I have for you, in the one minute we have left together, what are you planning for, or what should, uh, how should we look at this September UN General Assembly as part of this um, bigger picture of the non-aligned movement and you know the United States ambitions on the world stage? Um, I, I think it's really exciting. I hope maybe I can come back on to talk about it. I mean, there's some really exciting things coming up with this General Assembly. And I, I know a lot of people, especially in the United States, they, they get frustrated with the United Nations because it can be quite um, inefficient at times. But in these days of, of great power competition, we need a multilateral body working at its best to try to deal with these global problems we have. They're looking uh, at, uh, at re, 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 rethinking the, not rethinking, but a re- invigorating the sustainable development goals which which are the 2030 goals to help countries you know move to a more uh, a, a better way of, of of developing past uh these these sort of short-term debt traps as you say and raising up all people from the bottom up so they're looking at, at, at reinvigorating those also the secretary general and many member states are going to meet on the sidelines about how to look at the youth and the next generation how they will deal with issues yes like pandemics and climate but also technological disruption it will be the next generation that must deal with this so now i think the united nations is trying to uh partner you know these the wisdom of the ages for some of these uh, older leaders we have with young leaders sponsored by the united nations and member states around the world to see how we're going to solve the problems of the future that's going to be a big theme of this year's general assembly thank you so much andrew cheatham senior advisor for global policy at the united states institute of peace thank you for joining us today
This podcast has been brought to you by the United States Institute of Peace and Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124.